Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's up, everyone? And welcome to another special episode of IndiePod, where we get to talk to the people behind some of our favorite indie games. Today, we have some of the team behind the upcoming title known as Mira, The Legend of the Jins. Thanks for joining. Hello. All right, let's start with some introductions. Evan, let's go with you first. Hey, I'm uh, Evan Todd McCoy. I'm the narrative designer for Mira, The Legend of the Jinns. I do a little level design as well, and I help with uh, project management. So I help organize um, how we're going to build different parts of the project and how we're going to turn ideas into assets for the game. Very cool. And Oliver? Hey, I'm Oliver. I'm the producer for Amir, the Legend of the Jinns, and I basically I help with team management. I help with uh, funding the game. That's probably a big big portion of what I do, and you I also help that. with yeah, and I also help with uh, game design a bit as well. Very cool, very cool. So I'm I'm very glad uh, that we were able to talk today. Vaughn and I, who is um, for our news episodes, my co-host, we were able to talk about this game already in our God Bless the Crowd segment, and we both really enjoyed it. I'm very happy to see uh, people who are, you know, going on Kickstarter, trying to get their game funded, because I'm sure it's a hell of a stressful time for you. Um, But before we actually talk about the game, my main thing that I always like to start off with is just getting to know the people behind the game. So you talked a little bit about, you know, who you are and and what you do for this project. But why don't we take a a step back even further? Uh, Evan, let's start with you. Uh, How did you get into the gaming space? How did you, you know, like, what's your favorite type of games? When did you start playing games? When did you know you wanted to work on games? Like, let's get into a little bit of that. Okay. Uh, shit. Let me know if I'm going on too long. I, uh, I probably started like, like I'm 35. So I started playing video games when I was like five years old, had an NES controller grafted to my hand right from then. Very and, cool. uh, played all the classics, uh, had a super Nintendo growing up when it switched to the Sony console versus the Nintendo consoles. I went Sony. I stayed with Sony till the 360. And then I switched back to Sony for the PS4. I also started PC gaming in 2011 with Skyrim. So I've been playing pretty much everything I can get my hands on since I was five. Um, like in terms, of, yeah, and in terms of game dev, I've always written. I've always uh, created like different kinds of things, comic books, stuff like that when I was little. But I got into video game development when I was 14 with RPG Maker, uh, the original RPG Maker 2K. Mm-hmm. And I've probably played with RPG Maker like thousands of hours and I, I get away from it and I'll come back to it and I've used all of them. And so it's like 20 years of a relationship I have with that. Um, in terms of this current project, I, uh, I've done freelance writing for a, a while now, and uh, I was a teacher uh, before COVID. I'm not sure if I'm a teacher anymore. We'll see. Um, Oof, and yeah. I did that stuff on the side, right? So now it's kind of turning into more of a career option for me, and I've, I've been able to, to to get professional clients and, and, and do professional work. So that's mm-hmm. been cool. With yeah. Mira, I got brought on from a previous contact I had who was consulting on the team at the time, and he's still a consultant for us. Uh, he goes by Baz. And he's uh, he's a guy that Rashid runs code by usually in, in UI elements because that's his strong suit, his uh, his kind of area. Um, so he got me and he introduced me to Rashid. We kind of went through an onboarding process and uh, the project made sense for all of us. And we worked together a little bit um, with some preemptive work or preamble work, I guess, some like uh, 
a rewrite of the story outline, a few things like that, just to get the ball rolling. And, and then I joined and I've been there working for um, Oliver and with Rashid quite a bit since I think last October. So it's been just about a year. Wow. Wow. Very cool. Oliver, how did, how did you get uh, started with the team? So um, I, I've, well, I've also been, you know, playing games all of my life and it was always kind of a, a dream of mine really to make a video game. Like I just, I thought that that would be the coolest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I've, I've, I've been working IT for, for, I guess about nine years now. Um, but about four, maybe, maybe almost five years ago now, um, I guess it was maybe it was four years ago. I was approached by a friend of mine from high school who has a lot of uh, he had a lot of business experience, um, and he actually had uh, a uh, an Amazon seller account, right? Okay. And he and he talked to me about hey, do you want to make a video game? Like, I, I think that we, we can make basically if you work with me to sell on Amazon. Um, you, we, I think we can make enough money to basically make a video game because when we looked up all of these assets and stuff like that and we had all of these harebrained ideas about how we were going to learn Unreal Engine 3 and then just like buy assets and then make like a 3D awesome video game and yada, yada, yada. And of course, you know, we, we started off doing that. We just fell on our faces. Unreal Engine is way too complicated for somebody uh, just starting out, basically. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And, and we, we, that became very clear um, in a fairly short amount of time. Um, so, you know, we kind of had to reassess what we were going to do and, and i decided to to basically go way like look way down the way down a lot lower and start with a lot more easy of a, of a concept of a game and so that led me to the rpg maker community and that's uh, where i actually met rashid who's our main developer and i've been working with rashid for about three years now um we started off working on a, on a different game which i had a little bit more of a role in the actual game design uh, of, but uh, we decided to jettison that game whenever the whenever Pixel Game Maker came out, which is the uh, software that we're using to develop the current game, because it's just quite frankly a lot more powerful than right. uh, RPG Maker was. And so now now we're doing that. Rashid, uh, like I said, you know he's he's been with me since since basically. Yeah, like I said, like three years ago, basically since the beginning of me actually making a game, uh, we really didn't do anything with Unreal Engine uh, at the end of the day. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so it's been it's been about two years now since we've started working with Pixel Game Maker. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's I mean, I guess that's basically the story. I just we we just continually realized we needed more and more people on the team. Uh, we need a writer, musician, uh, social media, art. Uh, we've got mm-hmm. an art director, you know, another pixel artist. So we just kept on getting more and more people, and that's how we have. We now have a team of seven people, and so that's that's how we got from there to to here today. Uh, yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, it's it's amazing to think there's a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, I'll just do it all on my own, and like that's totally fine. It's, you don't think about how many steps there are, how many roles that you really need to take on when it comes to game development. You right, gotta live and yeah. breathe uh, your your kind of solo project, your passion project. If you want to get it done, it's it's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. <laughs> I'm starting to get into Unity development a little bit um, on a personal project of mine, and it's like the stuff that I didn't know versus what I do know now is uh, yeah, I could do a it could take two couple of years probably just to learn it all in the classroom, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's there's a lot out there. Um, so you mentioned that you switched over about. Uh, 
was it two years ago to uh, this stronger program? So would you say that Mira has been in development for about two years or was it more of you playing around with a new tool and then figuring out, oh, let's try a totally different game with it? Yeah, I mean, we we did decide to jump to Mira whenever we whenever we got the new tool. Uh, I mean, that that was it was I guess multiple reasons. You know, for one, we the we had a top, it was a top down RPG that we were making, and even that was a little bit more you know expansive. It was just a little bit more dif difficult because there's more vectors than like a side scroller to deal with. So right. it was it was taking back the scope a little bit, um, but also we wanted to do something for uh, a specific uh, game competition that they had for Pixel Game Maker, um, yeah. and, and uh, which we, we ended up being a finalist. We didn't end up winning it, but we ended up being one of the top 10 finalists uh, so of, like, of like, you know, 60 or 70 different submissions. Right. Uh, and, and so, I mean, that, that, those, that's the main reason why we decided, that was a, a big reason that we decided to, to uh, go on to doing Mira. But, it also was just a really good idea too that uh, our art director, who who was working with Rashid even at the time on the old project, he, he was the one who came up with the idea for Mira, which was based off of a Moroccan uh, Amazir folktale, and it was just it was a really cool idea because it's just something that's not been done, certainly not yeah. in like the West, whereas like our previous game was more just kind of standard sort of like anime bad guy villain kind of thing i mean you know it just it was a very standard sort more of more like character. a jrpg kind of thing from yeah the old, yeah, from the it, old days yeah right and, and this is just it has a more unique and it has a more unique aesthetic and those kinds of things yeah that makes sense uh, okay so let's let's actually dive into the game now uh let's talk about this because i think it's really cool uh we talked about it in our our kickstarter segment that we both think that is an interesting pick for sure but for those who might not know anything about this game, how would you describe Mira? Like, what's the the elevator pitch that you give for this? You wanna you wanna tackle this one, Oliver? <laughs> uh, I, think, I feel like you're the elevator pitch guy, so uh, it might be. Um, okay, uh, the way I describe it is, it's a Metroidvania. It, it pretty much what you think a Metroidvania would be. We have our own take on some mechanics, and we're trying to push um, for as many mechanics that are familiar as possible. So we're not. We're not really trying to reinvent the wheel with it, but we are trying to make a game that feels familiar and new at the same time. Some of the newness comes from the aesthetic and the uh, the setting, because like um, Oliver was saying, uh, Amazir mythology and Amazir culture, they, they're just not in video games. It's not one of those places that's well represented at all. Mm -hmm. And so it's really cool to draw from a place that is different than what we're used to, because we are used to seeing Western European and Northern European um, fantasy kind of tropes like elves and dwarves and you know castles and whatnot right. and i mean the interesting thing about amazir is that it's such a crossroads for their historical um sort of cultural footprint has been a crossroads of different cultures so there's actually a lot of stuff from like uh there's a lot of crossover between like old greek mythology and folktales with uh amazir and so like it's kind of cool to see where there's uh familiar elements and yeah. so we've we've tried to push the stuff that's unusual as much as we can but players are going to see things that are that are kind of just part of that region's like cultural and uh historical footprint in general like north africa and the mediterranean is, is kind of where we're pulling from yeah yeah no it was definitely one of the points that we mentioned where we were uh, very excited to see more variety when it comes to representation for these different uh yeah. these, these different types of mythologies because you don't see well, I've never seen anything when it comes to Moroccan or Amazir in any game. 
um, first of all. But generally, you see the same couple of ones that will cycle through when you're thinking of games. Yeah, and, and part of the fun of being in the indie space is you get to iterate stuff that, that isn't being done elsewhere. And like, um, and you have to, you were saying earlier, I think before we started recording about how Metroidvanias are a very common uh, genre right now mm -hmm. in the indies. Yeah. And what do we do to separate ourselves from uh, from others? And, and that was actually one of my first questions, I think, when I came on the project was like, what makes this Metroidvania different than Iconoclasts or Blasphemous or Hollow Knight or whatever? Right. And uh, and it, it is a lot to do with this um this sort of cultural backdrop and this aesthetic and a lot of things we're trying to do to tie that with gameplay. Uh, music plays a big role in our in our game. And traditional Moroccan music is a huge part of their culture. I mean, it is for everybody, but their music is uh, unusual. You don't you don't hear it everywhere, right? Um, where in video games you might hear a lot of uh, orchestral stuff that comes from Europe or comes from Asia, and and Moroccan music has got its own kind of flavor. So mm. our gameplay is going to reflect that a little bit, um, as opposed to just having it be part of the. The, the I don't know the backdrop of the game you know you hear the music playing in our game you're going to be able to kind of take a little bit of a role in that interesting can you can you elaborate a little bit uh, on on uh, yeah how absolutely. exactly that plays out yeah sure so there are puzzle elements that are going to be uh adjudicated through this musical tool it's an instrument called a gambri uh -huh. and that that's a traditional Moroccan instrument it's a little bit like it's not really like a guitar, but you know, it's in that, it's sort of adjacent to that family. You might think of it as being like a shamisen or a sitar too. It's kind of like that. It's a stringed mm. instrument. And uh, our music guy has one, he sourced one so he can play the gambri and for our music. And then in the game, uh, our main character Yuba, he is a musician and treasure hunter. Like he wears a lot of hats himself, right? Mm. And every now and then you're in an area in the game and you have to solve a puzzle and you play your gambri to do that. There's a major story event that that involves the Gambri. There are a lot of small, and we're thinking right now, optional story scenes that will play out around uh, particular areas in a level where the player can stop, take a load off, play some music, and then have the in-game characters who are spirits that uh, hang out with Yuba, but they aren't physically present really, but they can have conversations with him. And so those conversations will be optional, will play out around this music. Hmm. Um, yeah, so currently a lot of the narrative uh, isn't in the game yet and not in our demo yet either. So right. really excited to update that and, and to show what we're kind of thinking of in terms of how the story is going to play out because a lot of the game is story-driven. Right. I wouldn't say it's more story-driven than other Metroidvanias per se. Like it's it's probably comparable to something like Castlevania or uh, maybe Iconoclast or Owlboy. Uh, it's not quite as, as sparse as Hollow Knight. And I think there's probably a couple of of Metroidvanias that are even more story driven than ours that I, I can't think of a, an example right now, but yeah, something yeah. like that, something like that. <laughs> that makes sense. So I, I really like that. I think that's very interesting. Now, when you're talking about like from an optional standpoint, are you mentioning kind of like the idea that you can dive into the story or you can just, you know, run yes. to the next place and kind we're of enjoy? Keep, yeah, we're, we're totally trying to keep the speedrunner community in mind. Mm -hmm. um some of our team members are, are interested and follow that some of them i think even might have played at uh doing some speed running stuff of their own i'm not sure i'm not too sure about that mm -hmm. but i do know it's been a consideration since we started that we want to find ways where the player can engage with the game how they want to and like that might include in the future other options that 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 not so much save time but allow you to kind of uh, approach the content the way you want to and I mean, I'm a narrative designer, so like for me, making the story optional is like, you know, scratch me, scratch me a thousand times. But <laughs> but like I, I'm also a gamer and and I know yeah. I know how it is. Right. So um, I want that to be there and I want it to be good and worthwhile, because the best thing for me would be if people play th for the story anyway, even if they go in and they're intending to do a speed run or they're just intending to crush the content. 
and then they're not too interested in, in sticking around to listen to dialogue or do optional story scenes uh if they do that's better for me than if i force it on them right like right right yeah because then you're you're bogging people down who would have had exactly. time or something and we're and we're constantly yeah and we're constantly negotiating things like will this cut scene be a cut scene or will this be a flash of dialogue that 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 is like in a panel over mm -hmm. the character while they're moving around so the the player can ignore it or they can read it and then when a cutscene happens like you know of course we'll have the standard options where you can kind of skip through it quickly and whatnot right, and we're, we're right. currently just working around like how things feel as we're building levels um is this too much dialogue are we stopping the player too often and and we kind of i work with rashid very closely on 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 finding the right feel for that and that's a lot of what i do with level design yeah, that's an interesting point because it's it's really tough to to know something like that because yeah. you're going to have such a wide audience potentially, right? Of right. people who want to be this like I just want to get in and do a bunch of stuff and and get to the end because I'm part of the speedrunning community versus the people who want to sit down and take their time and really de like dive deep into that world. And right. granted, it might be the same person just at different times of playing, right? Of course, yeah. I mean, like some people will crush content in the first playthrough and then go back and do a slower more uh leisurely one a lot of our following right now are uh northern african moroccan amazir people and so they seem to ask and be ask more questions and be more interested in the story so i'm, I'm imagining a lot of those guys are going to play just to see how a dude from canada <laughs> translates some of their their uh mythology into a fantastical setting right yeah, uh, that's I, that's a great point though, because I I did want to to talk about that. Like, you know, where did that inspiration come from? First off, you you mentioned it a little bit, but also like, how are you getting that right? If, right. If you know, you are just that that guy from Canada, right? Or yeah, this, yeah. This <laughs> from a different location, right? How are you making sure that it that it kind of clicks? I have a background, um, like I have an English lit degree, and and my specialization in that degree was uh, was folk tales, Northern and Western European folk tales. So I'm pretty comfortable working with mythology, and I'm pretty comfortable with oral history. Um, I've also learned a lot about indigenous uh, indigenous sorry oral history in Canada. Big part mm -hmm. of my training as a teacher is is being um, aware of that stuff and how how do you teach that to people, right? So in with uh, in this case, it's kind of just having like um, a sense of when do we want to pull something out of out of like a folktale or, or a mythos? When do we want to refer to specific things and when don't we? And there are all kinds of uh, considerations there. There's there's cultural considerations like we don't. There's certain things that are more sensitive than others. Um, there's stuff that we can do that's more dinner, dance and dress, like just kind of cultural iconography. For instance, one of the things that I did was uh, in our game, we have your standard healing potions. But when I was doing item lore and, and trying to kind of Dark Souls it up a little bit, where the lore would have descriptions that would, would or the items would have descriptions that would advance lore a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, we thought about, well, how do we connect this to Moroccan culture? And we did, we, we used tea because uh, tea mm. is huge in Morocco. They have this whole kind of their own sort of uh, specific uh, culture around it, their own rituals around it, and their own like attitude. There's proverbs about tea. You know what I mean? Like they have proverbs about tea. So I made the healing items tea. And I mean, that's a really yeah. easy thing somebody like me can can be responsive to. But when it goes deeper, I always talk with Rashid and uh, Shurgath, our artist, who's also Amazir and also from Morocco. And we, we all, the three of us kind of, with me being the guy like sitting in the corner scratching notes sometimes, um, we all kind of come up with what's the appropriate level because it is a fantastical setting at the end of the day. So right. we kind of just find that balance wherever we can. Hmm. That's a, it's, it's a interesting point. I honestly wouldn't have even thought about it if you didn't bring it up, but I'm glad to hear that, you know, there is more of that, that, uh, I guess quality or, or that, that thought that's going behind the, why are certain items chosen, right? Any game yeah. could just have, uh, uh, an HP potion or exactly. something like that. Yeah. Right. But why not make it more specific to that theme? 
and that's literally the least you can do like that's that's the, that's easy mode anybody any game writer any narrative designer can can easily find um i guess thematic ways of using uh standard game mechanics and standard game objects that we would expect to see in a way that uh reinforces your lore reinforces your aesthetic because you can't do everything through text right. you have to you have to find other ways of doing it and and the guys that we have on our art team they're fantastic visual storytellers like fantastic so it's like when when we have that and then we have somebody doing the doing the like kind of checking to make sure it's all where we want to be in terms of reflecting and, and being responsive to the culture and we have a team that cares about that because we all do mm. that's all very uh that, that's all like we hope that we can just rest on our laurels a little bit and do the do the do a good job by feeling it out um as much as we can but we also have that following who can like already they're they're sort of looking at stuff that we've shown and they're they're giving us feedback on it we have some uh amazir writing in the game there's like some runes and glyphs that are that are uh derivative or derived from uh tamazir i think it's is how you say it it's the amazir language gotcha. and uh and we've had some people kind of saying hey you know here's a correction you could make on this if you want it to be exactly like this because it's oral stuff so it's not a lot of it has different alternate spellings, alternate definitions, alternate uh, a lot of alternatives, right? So you have to kind of um, you kind of have to like like feel it out again. I, I know I keep saying that, but that's that's a big part of what we what we, what we do. Right. I mean, it's all about iterative process, right? Yeah. It's the only way to find out what works best is to try small experiments to get to that step, right? Exactly. And, and we're very collaborative. So we, we had a, when I came on, we had a lot of conversations about where to be on this stuff, and uh, and then after that kind of takes place. Trust gets developed when you do the work. So I go off and I write some dialogue or I go off and I write some some material that we're going to put in in quest text or whatever it is. And the guys let me know if, uh, you know, if I'm using, because we do use some uh, Amazir borrow words in the dialogue. And it's yeah. really funny sometimes hearing what their literal definitions are. Um, it probably, it might be too long to go into now, but there's actually a pretty funny story about how our, our uh, main character got his name. You know, like he had a, he had a name before that, that uh, what it meant in, in Amazir was too funny to use. So like, that's, that's a short version of the story. And like, so little things like that kind of come out and I don't want to give the impression that we make things up as we go along or that feeling it out is a fancy way of saying that because we don't, but when you have a lot of uh, early uh, discussion, a lot of early strong planning, uh, you kind of can just hum along a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there's a little bit of that, you know, the, the forgiveness of, of doing something like that because of the, the fact that the the game development is still in its infancy, right? Like right. if you were at a different place in time, say, you know, three years out and you've been working on this game, you probably don't have as much leeway to make those crazy decisions. Maybe the name change, yes, but like certain pieces kind of get set in stone. Exactly. But you yeah. do that at the start to, to make sure that you're able to get to a, a point where it's not detrimental, right? Um, so I'm really glad that you brought the uh, hieroglyphics uh, point up because I wanted to talk about that. I see in your Kickstarter page, there's a number of places where there are these these hieroglyphic, these letters that, uh, you know, they're not uh, the obvious English letters that I know. And I wanted <laughs> yeah. to know if that was, and this might just be my ignorance, is this a something that you created as far as a language goes? Or is this actually from, you know, the, the roots that you're pulling inspiration for? Is this a real language? It is, as far as I know, um, at least arrived from Tamazir. I don't do the, the in-game writing or define that. That's our artists. Okay. So, so like, I'm not exactly sure what all of it says. Um, some of it, uh, uh, it's just, yeah, well, some of it's Mira's name over and over again, right? Like, like we do use Mira's name written in Tamazir quite a bit. Um, but, but yeah, there's actually all kinds of different, different bits. And unfortunately that's a, that's a huge Rashid question. 
because uh, he adds that stuff um, to the U- to the UI. He does a lot of our graphic design for our promotional materials. So like if you're looking at even our, our little cards where it shows who we are, we have these like fancy black and white photos and a little bit about us and a little quote or whatever. He designed all of that stuff. So he sneaks that, that stuff in there wherever possible. But I do believe that it is actually Tamazir writing. Their writing oh. is quite interesting looking. It's, oh, it's that's very, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's I, I actually do know what they say oh, on, our, awesome. on our Kickstarter page. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I, I basically I was the one who actually put it in. I, I got because oh. uh, I want I wanted some representation there, and so you know I talked obviously yeah with with uh, Rashid about it, and and we got like a basically the the very first part that you see on the Kickstarter page just says salutations people. Uh, and then, and then you know, it goes on to like Mirror is a love letter to Metroidvania, yada yada yada. And then the part that's at the top of our general overview, that's literally just the the uh, the, the short synopsis. That's uh, Mirror is a love letter to Metroidvanias and featuring a world based on Moroccan and Amazir mythology. That's just that translated oh. into uh, Tamazir. I didn't know you did that. There I go, giving Rashid credit for your work. <laughs> Well, I mean, he, he did the translation. I just told him, like, hey, I want to, you know, include this in the Kickstarter. You know, what what are the words for this? And then, you know, he was the one who gave me the words. Um, well, by our powers combined. Yeah, <laughs> right. there you go. Exactly. That's super cool. The, and the reason why, and, and because it's not like a, a created language, anytime I see different hieroglyphics like that, I always think of like Futurama, the show where they created their own language, the, the oh, yeah. lettering system. And Those are conlangs. Right. And had people who who would then decipher it and like find out these sentences throughout. Probably not the same kind of feel, but I do love the the idea of of having those, you know, that that language still in there because it stays true to its roots. Right. Yeah. And there's sort of like cereal box prizes for people from North Africa playing this game. It's like they're going to they're going to get a lot more out of that stuff the, for the rest of us. It's kind of like um flavor like it's it's cool to look at it it makes it helps enhance the setting it makes you feel like you're in a fantasy world most people might interpret that as a con lang like where we've written we've made up runes we've made up glyphs whatever yeah um and that and that's fine because that's that's how most people are going to take it in any game but it's really cool for people who kind of recognize that and if people want to dive deep into how this game was made and why um they might find that out and then they might they might take a certain amount of pleasure in going back through it and and uh and seeing if they can decipher those those um that writing you know yeah, yeah, and, it, I, and I guess just just one other thing. Our our main artwork, you'll see the it's mirror the legend of the of the gins, and right underneath it, you'll see a little like a C and E and an O. At least that's what it looks like to you know us English speakers. But that is actually the the Tamazi word for Mira. That's the translation, right. basically. I knew her name was in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. I love I love the little uh, the fun facts here. Um, let's talk about the mechanics for a second, right? Uh, oh. Just because you know it's a Metroidvania, uh, a lot of them usually will have uh, good features, mechanics. It's all about like traversal abilities. Yep. Picked uh, you know those upgrades, right? Like that's one of the big things that you associate with a Metroidvania. And when it comes to the trailer that I, I was watching for this game, I'm seeing things very you know uh similar things like wall climbing moving objects dashes can you elaborate a little bit on how progression when it comes to different areas and how your character works in this game we were doing some things with our item system that that a lot of people would do as an ability so for instance the wall climbing is a pickaxe and the pickaxe also helps you get through certain barriers so we have fun with the idea of like okay well what stuff should be a power that you unlock and what stuff should be uh, a tool and and we've kind of mm-hmm. I, I think rashid's idea is that anything kind of mundane 
that it makes sense for a person in like a medieval world to be able to do with a tool we've kind of used a tool right so we have right. our gambry we have um the pickaxe and at first a lot of the tools that yuba collects are mundane objects they're they're not magical but later on there are more magical objects because the the sort of magical nature of the setting opens up more as the story goes at first it's like almost post-apocalyptic people don't remember the history they don't remember these things and then later you guys rediscovering uh powers rediscovering objects and so on um the way our our powers work is that there are abilities that you unlock through these um these sort of uh i guess in, in metrovania terms it'd be almost like um, a room where you where you have a statue and that statue you interact with that statue and then you can unlock a skill tree yep. in ours the statue used to be a gin and it's a living uh, repository of information and fighting techniques hmm. and so in ancient ruins you can find instantiations of this uh, character called Vina and it appears as a face um, and you can interact with it but it, it kind of talks to you like it's a computer right and then you that's how you get to your skill tree and our skill tree has you know bonuses for damage and all the usual stuff when it comes to traversal powers and uh well actually just traversal powers i believe um most of those are, are through this kind of other unlockable thing you have to find the room that has this uh device inside of it that allows you access to what we call the primal source which is where jinns come from and all their magic comes from and when you can when you access that mira can cleanse um this corruption that is sort of a feature in the game and in order to derive power for yuba and and so that's kind of how that works uh in terms of the combat abilities as you uh, recruit Jin characters, of which I think there are six, um, each of them unlocks a different uh, elemental mode. And those elemental modes come with certain powers. So, for example, Mira is celestial. It's all light and healing and so on. But you'll eventually um, recruit a character named Arkia, and her thing is fire. And so when you have her, you're going to be able to start throwing fireballs around. And when you, when you have these abilities all kind of like collected, uh, different enemies have different elemental resistances and weaknesses and are currently what we're trying to do is make sure that the player can switch these modes and then therefore open up the abilities in that mode on the fly very quickly hmm. no no menus basically hit a button and then all of a sudden you're in lunar mode and in lunar mode you get some stealthy abilities you get more projectiles things like that and right. we're still balancing out exactly like what what modes are going to be responsible for which parts of gameplay but we have a system and an infrastructure for that already and it's and it corresponds to the lore in an interesting way because there's a hierarchy for jinns based on what kind of dominion they have over the elements so you've got your air jinns your water jinns and so on right Very and cool. when you recruit these characters you get those kinds of powers that you expect to get from like a water gin you might get water breathing and that's a traversal ability and so on Gotcha, gotcha. Let's let's dive a little bit into that that combat mechanic that you were talking about, as far as like these different modes. Uh, so, does that have anything to do with the specific weapon you're using, or is that more no. of like lacing that weapon with uh, fire? So you to got speak? it. That's the weapon is independent. Uh, Yuba is going to have access to pretty much um, four weapons, I believe, and there is some kind of we are we're still experimenting with with like how the weapons are going to work but right now we have four and each one corresponds to a mode but the weapons themselves um kind of work differently so like when you switch your modes uh one mode is daggers right the lunar mm -hmm. mode gives you daggers right so that's how you get that weapon it's not an equipable weapon in your inventory it comes with the mode i think i think okay. that's how we're currently doing it and then those daggers like work differently than your sword and so it's a little bit like um this is some inspiration we get from uh devil may cry and god of war is that the weapons really should function very differently from each other and, and they shouldn't just be like a reskin of something like uh, two different swords that do almost the same thing except one's fire and one's ice or something like that. Right. Um, and, and so there is a weapon system, but it is tied directly to the, to the modes and the powers. 
Gotcha. Is, is that, that going to be... that answer it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, right, cool. without giving too much away, right? But like, trying, that, yeah, yeah. Is that going to be something where, you know, with Metroidvanias, a lot of it is is finding things and that exploration yes. and being able to then see like, oh, okay, now I got this weapon, now I got this weapon, and you're right. able to interchange. Is it going to work that way, or is it going to be something where like you it's always... a hybrid approach? Like, okay. like we we do have. I don't think every power that you can get when you so suppose uh, for example you're recruiting a Jen, you're recruiting the Air Jin in the game Aisha, and mm-hmm. she comes with a certain weapon say right i don't think she does i think it, it works a little bit differently than that but let's say that she does um that would be something that you get through recruiting her but later on other powers that, that she opens up for you those are powers you still have to go out and discover you don't just get everything immediately right but right. there are tools and items and of course there's there's sort of like castlevania style weapons like bombs and daggers to throw that are like projectile weapons that are that are consumable those items you do have to kind of go out in the world and find gotcha gotcha and as far as uh, and this might be uh too early to to give a, a an actual answer but as far as like where you're going to find these and how the the progression goes as far as like a game perspective plays mm-hmm. out is this going to be something where like you know you're you're thrown into this map and and you have like oh you can go to this place or this place or this place and there's like the different element for for like a, a where you would find that that gin yeah so there's backtracking there is um we're trying to we're we're still working out ways to make it really clear to the player hey you got to cut you want to come back to this and also Mm -hmm. but still keep that sweet spot where people who like to explore and like to mess with the physics and stuff trying to get at places they normally can't um trying to find ways of of uh of honoring that tradition and 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 metroidvanias of like sequence breaking and the players being able to go wherever they want and figure things out i think like most games um we're starting out more linear and then the game opens up as you go so whenever you may, whenever you complete a, a level, um, a major set piece in the game, you'll be able to go back uh, to other levels and and re-explore them with new powers that allow you to unlock new stuff. So whether that's upgrades or in-game currency you use to buy upgrades, uh, whatever whatever we kind of want to want to do in terms of like making sure the pacing is right and that the balance is right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. That sounds that sounds uh, great. I mean, I'm interested to see more of it but you know i'll have to be patient um well, i can i can mention like that some of the ways we're doing um puzzles and and powers is like i mentioned the gambri an instrument that you play yeah yeah and and i think we're going to do button uh, a kind of button time event or quick time event sort of thing with that not really a quick oh, time event but like you know you'll press buttons along with the chords we're, we're currently experimenting with that idea right um but we're also gonna have things like uh the ability to telekinetically grab something and pull it we're gonna have yuba being able to phase uh through things and we're gonna have um, the 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 bog standard Metroidvania things like the air dash, the dashing, mm-hmm. all of that kind of mm-hmm. classic stuff. We also have a giant rock turtle crab that you can ride on, so you don't get hit by spikes. So every now and then we're throwing some weird curveballs um, that we hope are fun and uh, and interesting. And the rock monster is like my favorite thing in the game. So <laughs> I, like stuff like that is like it's ornate, you know. It's like. Um, Another game might just like make it so the character glows red and then, you know, you can walk across spikes or something. But we're mm-hmm. trying to bring personality uh, to that, that kind of stuff wherever we can. Yeah. The, the only thing I'd add just in terms of the combat is that we also have 
um, a pretty a pretty in-depth uh, combo system. So yes. it's sort of almost like, you know, Devil May Cry. I mean, some of the combos are almost like Street Fighter-esque, maybe not quite that in-depth, but, uh, you know, it, there are a lot of, you know, combos that you get to do to do like these pretty awesome moves in, in my view. So I think that's another, you know, somewhat unique uh, aspect that we approach combat with. Totally. And I forgot to mention it because I suck at that stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm not terribly great Rashid at it either. Rashid has to keep showing me how to do the combos. Oh my goodness. Well, well that's but they're good. good though. Like it, it feels good. And, um, and it feels like something like, you know, if you're not just play testing it, that like a player will learn and, and the feedback is pretty strong. So like when you're playing it, um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that by the time you're done, you're going to be, you're going to be jumping all over the place like a, like a God. Right. Right. And it, it, it fares well for that idea of a speed running community that we talked about earlier, sure. because if anyone's going to find the way to break it or the way yep. to be the most effective with combos right. that will be the community and we're pretty excited to see what they come up with and that's part of the fun like with metroidvanias and and, and games that are that are really mechanical like like it um the feedback from the community on game mechanics is like a big part of like the fun right seeing how they how they fuck up your game <laughs> like and, and do things you don't <laughs> expect is, right that is the technical term yeah it's, it's really cool it's really cool to see some of like these these uh streamers just like pick up the game and they're just able to do yes like they're just able to play it way better than i am like i have i've had way more <laughs> logged way more hours and yet they just like they see this combo and they're, they try it a couple of times and all of a sudden they're just doing it all over the place and just tearing up these enemies that i struggle with and, you know, but it's cool to see that though it is, honestly it is. Right. And it's yeah. it's neat when they figure out ways around things and like and I mean some of it's like you know it's going to be a bug we want to patch but it's the most fun way to find a bug. You yeah. know what I mean? Like if you got a guy who's managed to jump up three high, three times higher than he's supposed to eliminating the need to get to a chest say because they have a jumping power and they haven't unlocked it yet. Um that's actually like kind of a good problem to have. It's 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 sort of funny and it makes for good content for streamers and YouTubers and stuff to kind of just say look at this cool thing I did in this game that like normally you can't yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, yeah, it's it's an interesting point because I always wonder about this, especially when when devs are watching, you know, all of their hard work and they're like, I put in all this time for this hours of content. And then they find years later or, you know, shortly after the game comes out that, oh, you know, actually, if you do this one specific combo and you clip through here, you can skip all of that entirety and get to the power up or whatever it might be. And it's one of those things where I always look at it and I say, that's so damn cool. And it's then showcased in something like a Games Done Quick uh, right. event and then people get to see the game. Is it better to say that, you know, the dev goes, oh, I, I need to patch this because it's completely broken or that like chances are most people won't ever see that or do it if they have the opportunity. So do you just let it slide and keep it in there, you know? Yeah, and I think that different devs have different attitudes about that for sure. For sure, for and, sure. and I think it depends on like the I don't know the, the basically how bad the exploit is and how right. easy it is to do and like you know how often it comes up. I mean, I think it's it's a case by case situation. I think that you're right that sometimes just kind of like a cool thing that people can do if they try really really hard and maybe we do want to leave that in but if it's the kind of thing where like every single time you know this platform comes up that they're supposed to be able to, they, they're supposed to have to have double jump to get to and they're able to get it to it you know by cheesing it every single time without double jump probably right. want to fix that basically exactly yeah for yeah. sure for sure um i wanted to talk quickly about uh just the kickstarter in general because i think that kickstarters are a very stressful and a very uh magical at times uh events 
Um, and I just kind of wanted to talk about really what went into this as far as like a preparation goes or kind of what you intended to to really ultimately get out of this because there's the obvious one of money um right because that's what you need but some people are usually on the fence about like oh well we did this to push our our you know to promote ourselves kind of or we did this because we needed xyz whatever it is right so a little bit of just kind of the background of of uh how the process has been so far and what really has has gone into it sure i can i can probably speak on this um so we've we've been we prepped it for probably about i would say two months or so we we knew ahead of time probably that we were going to do the kickstarter mm -hmm. and um this is our first kickstarter you know i do think looking back there are, are some things that I, I i would have changed in in preparation for the kickstarter and i can i can talk about that if, if you want yeah sure um, but uh the uh but, but I guess before I do that, let me just answer your first question, which is, um, so yeah, we, we spent about two months, you know, in, in preparation for the Kickstarter. Uh, the answer is, is definitely that we kind of wanted really all of the above. You know, we wanted the money, obviously. Mm -hmm. We wanted the, you know, the notoriety and the, uh, uh, you know, the basically getting, you know, getting it, getting our brand out there, essentially, you know, getting the game out there, getting it more well known. Um, that that is also, you know, a huge aspect of, of you know, us doing the Kickstarter. Um, you know, we do still very much want to make our goal. We're not, we're not, we're certainly at this point, not on track to make it as of today of, of, that we're recording. It could be different from the time that the, this podcast actually comes out. Right. Um, you know, as, as, as you stated before, it's probably just going to come out a couple of days before the end of the, of the fun of the funding period. Um, we, we do have, you know, some backup options. If, if we're still, we're going to make the game one way or another with or without the Kickstarter, um, what we'll probably end up doing is launching another Kickstarter for a smaller goal uh, the following month. Uh, if we do end up failing at this Kickstarter, gotcha. and it will, it'll, 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 what it will do basically is we'll just pull support for some of the platforms, uh, probably the Xbox and PlayStation, and we will, uh, you know, extend the production period to instead of getting done in early 2022 it might not get done as late as 2023 that well, we don't i don't have all of the exact details yeah, that's, of, that's of, fine there's a lot of, that goes into this i don't expect right, you to know everything right, at this but, point. but we, we do have some you know action plans for what happens if, if we don't make it so you know like i said we're still gonna we're still gonna make it one way or another but that's certainly cer certainly the money was uh you know it was and is you know something that we very much want to get out of it we can we can make more of a full game and and the game to the you know the level that we want if we get fully funded this go round sure. um sure. now in terms of of some things that i probably would have done differently i think you know a, a little bit more uh i guess prep uh i, I would have liked to have had the our uh, video basically our, our kickstarter video probably ahead of time i think we ended up finishing it up maybe like just a, a, a week or maybe even just a few days before we went live with the kickstarter yeah. i think yeah, i think it would have been good to have had that uh, uh, like a month in advance and just been plastering it all over the internet like a month right. in advance i think that that would have been really really good i, I would have upped the our, our lowest tier right now we're, we're doing 15 dollars for our lowest 
pledging tier. And, you know, that made a lot of sort of logical sense in terms of like, that's about how much we're planning on selling the game for and like that kind of thing. But man, everybody chooses the lowest tier. So if we just yeah. upped it to like $20, you know, I mean, it wouldn't have changed. It wouldn't have changed the outcome hugely. But I, I think that that would have probably been a good idea. I think at this point, even if we do a second Kickstarter, I'm, we're going to keep the, the lowest tier at $15 just because that's what we did previously. But if yeah. I could go, go back and like do it from the very beginning, I probably would up that lowest tier just just a smidgen. Um, you know, <laughs> just 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 because, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's... you know, that's what that's what the overwhelming majority of people go for and you know it's understandable and i and i totally get that but sure. um yeah i mean i think those two aspects are the biggest ones that i would have would have changed if i could go back and do it again yeah it's a it's a tough call to make because you know i i look at kickstarters a lot uh just because of the you know for the show and also just in general because i i really enjoy seeing what's coming out but uh, fifteen dollars is is generally like the average that you see, right? And that's kind of why a lot of people pick it. But I, I think I even said this uh, uh about your your game when we talked about it in the news episode is that the the tier that you had for fifteen and the goal that you had in mind was pretty uh pretty tough to hit if you know everyone did go for that one, which is kind of the the norm right just because of right you just you need a lot of people to really get on board with it then which mm -hmm. doesn't always happen right away the good thing is like you said you know you're not there yet but uh typically kickstarters will be in the last like the first week and the last week are their busiest so there's always still time to make that catch up um but i i am happy to hear that you know uh, even if it doesn't go through that you know you'll still be focusing on the game this isn't like a make or break obviously there's going to be uh changes that that will come unfortunately because of that but it's good to hear that you know the team is still passionate the team still wants to to work on this and and make sure that this comes to fruition right right yeah we'll just we may we may have to yeah talk about reducing the scope i mean that's that's the major thing yeah and length, lengthening the development period as well we really just wanted to to get the full amount to crank it out and get it done by you know early next year i think april 1st is what we are saying in our kickstarter but yeah i mean obviously if if, if we aren't able to get fully funded we are going to have to yeah lengthen that and then yeah cut probably some bells and whistles and, and right. other things like that and i mean we know what we're, we know what we're doing on some level in terms of like um where this could go and what could happen so we're aware of like the kickstarter maybe failing and then what happens so as we do level design uh, one of the things that i do is i build in um i guess notes is a is a paltry term for it but i build in like um awareness that that this is a thing we could cut you know this right, is this right. is scope this is where we want to cut scope and i try to include that consideration uh in the level design and and in the conversations that i have with the other team members like like what like we have ideas all the time but it's like what can we do and what can't we do somebody's got to kind of keep an eye on that and make sure that we're we're organized with that information or at least like what features that look like that we need to have versus not need to have. And so we, we run a conversation about that uh, pretty consistently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I wish both of you the best of luck. I definitely am very excited for this game. Before we wrap this up, I do just want to ask our last question that we always ask the people who come on here, which is just some general advice. Um, you know, both of you have been in this space for uh, a few years now, or possibly even more, but I'm specifically talking about Mira. Um, and I'm sure that you've both learned a lot of things uh, along the way. If um, let's do it in this context, if there was one thing that you could say to your former, like previous self, uh, a couple years back before you started with Mira, uh, what would you tell yourself? 
Okay. Yeah. I, I would definitely tell myself like, don't, don't start with like the pinnacle of gaming, basically. Like don't start, you know, for me, it was Unreal Engine 3. It was like, don't, I, maybe that's not exactly the right word, but like, don't start with like the super complicated project, uh, you know, start small, start small. I mean, that's maybe the, the better, uh, you know, more succinct way of saying because you, you do, you just need to get your foot in and then, you know, just start off in the, in the shallow end of the pool, get your legs underneath you. And then, you know, maybe, you know, at some point you can start slowly venturing out into the deep end, but definitely don't try and take on the world right at the very, very beginning. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, what about you, Evan? Oh man, that's a, it's a, that's an excellent question. Um, I, I actually don't know what I would say to my former self. I guess let's try this. Like there, there isn't narrative design in, in video games. It's not a straightforward path and it's not, there's no school you can go to really. There's no, um, there's no one YouTube series you can follow to like learn how to, how the pros do it. It's very, it's a very walled garden. Um, people who do this stuff for the big companies, they don't really tell you and they don't tell anybody as much how, how they get where they are. It's a very, it's still a very undervalued and, uh, and under, um, I guess it's still mystical in a way. It's not demystified right. yet how you become a narrative designer. So what I would tell people is like, um, get very good at organization with your with with your documents and get used to not just writing huge, expansive lore pieces, but get good at technical writing too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and those weird liminal spaces in video game design where technical writing meets creative writing, because that's, that's a strong suit I have. I'm lucky because of my education that I have some of those skills already. But if you don't and you're just getting started out, um, and your background is different than mine, you, you may want to uh, brush up on that kind of thing. And I would tell people to do that for sure. Get really good at organizing details, get really good at writing in a way that almost anybody can read it. And especially if you're off the project and it's a year later and they need to look at your work, make sure that they can understand what it is. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, thank you so much. For those listening, Mira and the Legend of the Djinns is currently in development, but you can help them out by checking out their Kickstarter. Uh, definitely back it if you're interested. Uh, because I'm sure they would thank you a whole, whole ton. Uh, they also have a Steam page. You can go and check it out there as well, and you can wishlist the game um, because that gives them recognition and will also benefit them. You know, anything to help them out. Those are the two main outlets that you can go to. Um, but once again, uh, Evan, Oliver, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.